Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and companions, welcome to yet another amazing edition of the Fifth Column Podcast. It is me, Michael Moynihan. <laughs> Did you just boo me? No, no. In my own some, intro? Someone whispered the boo. Yeah, that was somebody whispered the yeah. boo. It was you that whispered it. It was on Squadcast. That is Matt Welch, who's an editor-at-large, which mean, means he doesn't do anything over at Reason. But he does host the Reason Roundtable, a very fun podcast, usually ruined by a few of the participants. But you're good on it, Matt. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And um, usually at this point, we have our, our you know inane banter. Uh, Camille tries to get us to say bad words mm-hmm. to get us canceled. I don't know why he consistently does that. But Camille is again missing. He is the Patty Hearst of this podcast. <laughs> he has been abducted by the Symbionese Liberation Army and taken to a conference where he is going to be the odd man out, or so he says. What that conference is, I don't know, nope. and we shall never find out. But we don't need him. Nope. Why don't we need him, Matt? Because we have replaced him. Yes. The Great Replacement is happening. (laughs) This is the Tucker Carlson Great Replacement. And we have replaced him with a former guest we've had before, one of our favorites. Episode number 102. 102? In May of 2018. Oh, God, a lifetime. Three and a half years ago. That's a long time ago. Back when we paid money for our studio space. You know, uh, yes, and it's funny because you want to do the great reveal and then you realize with podcasts that it says in the description when you're yeah. downloading it. Or you know who the guest is. And the question that I have is do we say Jakob or do we say Jacob? Oh, Machangama. You know, go ahead. We say, I'm going to say uh, Jakob. Jakob, yeah. Because you that's, are uh, that's what, that's a, a what Dane. That's what would say, yeah. Yeah, you're a Danish uh, intellectual, I would say. That's probably a good identifier for you. That's that's uh, generous of you. <laughs> well, only an intellectual can can write this doorstop of a book that is sitting in front of me, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot see this because we're not the Joe Rogan podcast, meaning the president and Jen Psaki are not saying that we should get off the air. Uh, called Free Speech: A History from Socrates to Social Media, and it is uh, published by Basic Books. And it is, uh, according to PJ O'Rourke, who provides one of the blurbs in this, it is the best history of free speech ever written in the best defense of free speech ever made. Roll over, John Stuart Mill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah John Stewart who? Uh, we now have a competitor. Uh, uh, Jacob, Jakob, welcome. Thank you so and much. And thanks for coming back, and welcome uh, back to New York. It's a bit of a jarring to be back in New York now, isn't it? It is. You know, uh, when I was living here in 2018 with my family, two kids, uh, it was a very different vibe from now, I think, you know. Calmer vibe? Calmer vibe. You know, now when I went on the subway here, you know, I was uh, uh, feeling a bit paranoid, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're also Danish. So, yeah. like, everything in Denmark is like, you yeah, know, long Was it the guy you know? pushing you with two hands into the track yeah. um, in front of the oncoming train? Is that yeah, kind of or, or like the... Uh, the zombies that were approaching me in yes. the in the other car and yes. trying to gnaw at my ankles. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're being racially profiled as a Danish person. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So you wrote this book. Um, you've this is actually a logical step from the podcast that you did, which is great. And by the way, this is not just blowing smoke up Jacob's uh, skirt. Uh, yeah, skirt. That's what I was looking for. Uh, we have mentioned many, many times on this podcast uh, the brilliance of your own 
multi-part series. How many parts is that series? The history of free speech. Forty-two. Forty-two. Good lord. Oh, Forty-one. Well, last time uh, he was on, he was at the medieval period. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I finished with an episode on free speech and racial justice just after the whole oh. George Floyd thing. So. Is that right? Yeah. How did that? It's a good time you? to retire. Yeah. You know. N- no one has ever tried to cancel me or anything. It's a bit disappointing. Yeah. I, but, you know, they look at you, and let's be reductionist and American about this. They look at you and they say, I don't know what that is. Is he Puerto Rican? <laughs> let's be honest. We have to be honest. You look at Jacob and it's like, is he from an island that no one's ever heard of? Mm-hmm. Or is his father from an island that no one's yeah. Your father actually is from what island? The Comoro Islands, yes, in the Comoro East, Islands. in East Africa. You, you know, for those of your many ninety percent of your followers who just yep. watch the African Cup of Nations soccer, uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Comoro Islands shocked and uh, yes, and, and had a very good tournament. And the goal of the tournament was scored by a guy called Mshengama, my last name. Is that right? Is he a member of the family, uh, or is everybody called that? Depends on your definition. <laughs> <I guess>. <laughs> <laughs> So they're 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 an, they're an island that's sort of between Madagascar and what, yeah Mozambique uh, Mozambique, uh, yeah. Mozambique Tanzania yeah Which but you mean, grew up in Denmark I grew up in Denmark yeah and and you have obviously a, an absurd Danish accent everyone hears this and says oh this guy's clearly Danish yep he's um, uh, inserting some Danish propaganda in the at the beginning of the book like uh, like here are the free speech yes. moments in the pre enlightenment history and like Dave Denmark's in there yeah, yeah he just forgot it's in a book that's probably being published in America <laughs> in England we, we, like, we were the first country in the world to completely abolish any and all censorship didn't last very long yes went pretty bad especially for the guy who did it uh, who got had his head cut off <laughs> <laughs> But it's, but, it's, uh, you know, it's an inspiring story. <laughs> but that it's funny, though, because I think it was probably the last time you were on, and we can uh, work backwards from this. You led the fight to eliminate Denmark's sort of long dormant since the 1970s uh, blasphemy laws that were now coming back into vogue. I mean, there was somebody who I think on DR, the Danish uh, state television, burned a Bible in the 1970s or something. But this came up again and you led the fight against blasphemy laws. Anybody listening to this would be like, wait, there are blasphemy laws in Denmark? Denmark? Yeah. yeah. And there were. There were. And uh, yeah, as you said, no one had been charged since the 1970s. Uh, and then this guy who with around two and a half followers uh, on social media burned a Quran and said something nasty about Islam. And then for the first time, he was charged and that led to a controversy. And and I think basically the only reason why he was charged was a fear of sort of a rerun of the whole cartoon affair and sort of just national security, basically. Yeah, Um, yeah, we we met, you know, it's really sort of uh, I probably bored your listeners with the story uh, back in May 2018. They don't remember. They're all alcoholics. <laughs> yeah. But it was like the decisive vote were with a um, sort of small progressive center-left uh, party. And so if they decided to vote in favor of repeal, yeah. it would be repealed and, and, and vice versa. And so they invited me and the editor of the Christian Daily newspaper to to speak in to their group of MPs while live streaming it to their members and then the members based on that could decide on you know how they should vote and then so we both went up there and uh, did our uh, propaganda uh, dog and pony show exactly and then uh, <laughs> yeah. 70% of their members voted in favor of repeal so yeah. uh, so that was a very direct <laughs> how was the christian he was he's he's a very reasonable uh, man. I, I I like him a lot, and I think he's come around to you know. 
you don't see anyone arguing that it should be sort of reintroduced. Yeah. The only party that once the other party saw which way it was going, they most of them decided to vote in favor of repeal, except for the Social Democrats, you know, which is paradoxical given yeah. given that they used to be uh, prosecuted under the blasphemy yeah. law. But yeah. Power corrupts. But you know, but that switch is kind of interesting because Denmark has been, you know, again, I mean, t- 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you said Denmark is going to be the front in the, the battle of free speech, you, I would have thought you were out of your fucking mind. I mean, I'd been to Christiania, bought hash on the street in the, you know, this thing that you walk in and it says you're now leaving the European Union. I don't know. I don't, that's not still there. No, I, I think it is. It I, is still there, but they, they cleaned it up a little bit. I think the cops came in and, and busted some hands. But um, what is it like now? And everybody knows that it became this kind of crucible of the free speech struggle because of the Mohammed cartoon crisis. Yeah. What's it like today? I mean, I remember, I mean, Lars Vilks has passed away. I remember when I was last there, there was the attack on the synagogue and artists like Lars Vilks was at at a little meeting there too. Yeah. And so at that point, I was like, this has really gotten to a boiling point. And when the guy who committed this terrorist act was himself killed by, I guess, the Danish special services that came out and, and, and shot him down in Norbro, where he was living. Lots of people came out for his funeral. I thought it was the most appalling thing I'd ever seen. And yeah, I thought it was... I remember, com- yeah, you were in Denmark. Yeah, we I was were, in Denmark for that, yeah. yeah. And it was shocking. The number of people that came out to follow this funeral procession of a guy who had just attacked and killed a, a filmmaker um, and then shot up a synagogue. And it was just wild. But it seems like things have been quiet fairly, you know, in the last couple of years. I mean, what is the situation like now? Yeah, you know, uh, right now, I think the biggest threat to free speech now is not necessarily so much from Islamists, it's actually our government. So in yeah. the in the past, you know, maybe five or six years, uh, a whole number of laws have been introduced to restrict free speech uh, in Denmark. You know, obviously, you know, if you compare us to most other countries in the world, it's still a free speech uh, haven. What is the most troubling of those laws that have come forward? I think really it's the, the cumulative if, effects, but right now there's a bill which is I think is quite worrying. So it says that social media platforms uh, with I think a hundred thousand users or something like that have to put up procedures where they, after receiving a complaint, must they'll evaluate the legal nature of content, any content violating any law within 24 hours. Uh, so, so that's a big incentive to uh, to it's a great to, jobs work program no kidding, to hire people. Though, God, right? <laughs> so, I guess Denmark needs some lawyers. It's great. No, it's not, it's, you know, it's not just hate speech or incitement to terrorism. You know, it's also you know I don't know marketing rules or intellectual property. You know, whatever any. Is COVID could, misinformation part of that? Because that's no, it's a not, daily not, thing here. Yeah, no, no, no. That probably would not uh, be uh, illegal in most. And what is that debate like in Denmark at the moment? Is there a lot of stuff that we have to shut down the Joe Rogans of Denmark? No, no, not a lot. But uh, I think one of the things, and, and I guess you get that here, is that traditional media has really skewed incentives when it in, in covering social media. They tend to focus on all the, the, the harms and the costs of free speech on yeah. social media while ignoring all the, the positive things and also to exaggerate the harm. So if, if you read traditional media reports, very often the picture you get is that there's this tsunami of hate speech and, and disinformation sure. flooding social media. And actually, 
when you look look at it and start, try to measure it, the share of misinformation is quite small. And we just did a study showing that looking at hate speech, it was like out of 63 million uh, com- Facebook comments, it was like 0.006% that were uh, violated the Danish penal code. But And so that's based on actual a, a representative written, sample, written yeah. Danish law of what would be considered. Yeah, it was basically speech. us. So, so we get a representative sample of 2,500 yeah. comments, and then we uh, put my young lawyers in a sweatshop and uh, <laughs> let let them out when they've finished the, the so legal analysis. So you're breaking other Danish laws <laughs> while trying to determine if uh, other people are yeah, taking breaking Danish exactly. laws. So I think the picture is much more nuanced. Of course, in absolute numbers, it's a lot. January 6th, would not have happened without social media. I think that that's inarguable and there are harms. But I think in generally in democracies, we tend to take free speech completely for granted. So the three of us can now sit here around a table and we can bash politicians and powerful figures. And I don't think any of us think of it as we are exercising our First Amendment freedoms. You know, we just... No, we're just we're just talking shit. Yeah, we're just drunk. talking yeah. shit, and 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 you know, and we do that every day. Yeah. But if we were in China or you know in Turkey or in Russia, uh, having this conversation would have end really bad for yeah. for, for all yeah. of us. You had a little uh, Ron um, uh, in near the front of the book talking about how even free speech champions, people like who were conscious of it, um, had a tendency to wherever they were in time to look at the newest new media entrant and say, yeah, free speech is great, but man, the radio, (laughs) that is fucked up. Can you talk a little bit about that that tendency through history? You're absolutely right. I I basically argue that there's an egalitarian versus an elitist conception of free speech that goes back to an ancient time. So the egalitarian concept has its roots in the Athenian democracy, uh, Mm. whereas the elitist one has its roots in in the Roman Republic. And you see a constant tension between those. So I have this quote from Erasmus, this sort of great humanist scholar who wrote tons of stuff himself. But then, you know, he says, uh, printers are the worst because they fill the world with the endless books that are impious, mad and, and, and crazy. And you see the same thing when, when newspapers, for instance, in the, the Dutch Republic became sort of the printing house of Europe. And you see the Dutch elites who are sort of, it's great that we have free speech for the, for the elite, but these corantos that appeal to the masses, uh, to ordinary people, now that is uh, completely... Free speech uh, for me, but not for thee. Yeah, and, yeah. and free speech for a, a certain group of the well-educated, but not the unwashed mob. That is very much part of the whole debate over social media, because even though in principle, everyone in democracy 15 years ago, everyone in principle had the same degree of free speech, but if you were an ordinary citizen... How would you have your voice heard in the public sphere? You wouldn't. You would have to be someone like Matt Welch, who was an editor at a, at a newspaper, at a, at a media outlet, who had a privileged access not only to speak and express themselves in the public sphere, but also to act as a gatekeeper on who got to, to speak. Boy, to. has that changed. People listen. Uh, they don't listen to you yeah. at all. <laughs> as, a matter, uh, as a matter of fact, it's the opposite. People don't like that. That's their status yeah. that being changed. But also there's this dread that new ideas, dangerous ideas being spread among the masses will erode the very foundation of society. And that's whether, you know, it was in religious times. So, for instance, Joe Rogan doesn't even come close to the efficiency of Martin Luther, the the great reformer, in in terms of efficiency, in in terms of communicating. He started writing in German. He started writing sort of these punchy, 
and with memes, cartoons <laughs> that would just appeal to the masses in a way that was completely unheard of because they were used Latin dry theological theses. And Martin Luther just speaks directly to the masses. You can also, even if you're illiterate, someone who can read can stand up uh, among people and, and read it to people and people get it. Like it speaks to their emotions. Yeah. And that just completely upends political and religious authority in Europe. And the, the response of the church is to institute systematic censorship around Europe uh, and, of course, uh, brutal repression. And Martin Luther is actually a very interesting person in terms of changing opinions. So when he's sort of summoned before the emperor at the Edict of Worms, he says, you know, I, I have to follow my conscience, you know. I won't recant because, you know, unless you show me somewhere in the Bible where I'm wrong, you know, I have to follow my conscience. But then all these other Protestant sects starts popping up because, you know, once you democratize access to the Bible, people are going to have all kinds of different readings of them. They're yeah. not necessarily going to follow Martin Luther's interpretation uh, of the Bible. That wasn't his idea. He thought, I have found out the truth. The truth is not what the Catholic Church is teaching. It's what I, it's my interpretation. Mm. So And so when all these other crazies start interpreting the Bible and, and find sort of justifications for rebelling against their princes or that, that there's no justification for infant baptism and so on, he, he, he sort of ends up advocating the death penalty for blasphemers. And, you know, mm. one of the, the, towards the end of his life, he writes this terrible, terrible pamphlet, The Jews and Their Lies, which sort of argues that Jews burn their synagogues. <laughs> they, they kind of, kind of given away the game when you just I mean, call it the Jews and their lies. Yeah. Is, That's like the Turner Diaries of Martin Luther's time. Credit yeah. for directness in yeah, the headline. Yeah, yeah. He knew yeah. how to, as you said, he knew how to do a punchy headline. <laughs> and uh, no, and, and, and it was obviously used by the by the Nazis for for propaganda yeah, purposes yeah, sure. later on. But you know, it, it's funny because. I've said on this podcast recently, and maybe it's the Patreon one that you should subscribe to, you cheap bastards. But uh, if you don't, I'll repeat it here. But I was talking about this fairly recently, is that one of the great antidotes to madness and heavy breathing about whether it's January 6th and, you know, the, all the crappiness that that entails. And we've been pretty clear about what we think about that. But our dissents, and I, I mean, there's different levels of dissent. Camille's definitely on the very dissenting end. I'm probably in the middle, Matt's probably on the other side of this a little bit. But it's just how far we take this as an institutional threat to democracy. And one of the things that I've said, and I think this kind of lines up with what you're saying, is that one of the great antidotes to paranoia and panic is historical knowledge. When you've seen this stuff in the past so many times, you tend not to heavy breathe as much and you say, well, this is just a pattern. We've seen this with a million people before. So when you're researching this book and you're researching your, your podcast, I mean, what is the thing that you see? I mean, there's probably many of them when you see a historical resonance, because we are in a moment right now, not necessarily a free speech crisis, but certainly one of free speech panic. Mm -hmm. that we must do something about Joe Rogan. I mean, a good example today, and again, people tend to muddy the waters on this and say, well, if it's not the government, particularly in America, then it, we're not talking about free speech. Well, we're talking about a kind of instinct towards a censorious, a more censorious nature is, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> who apparently isn't Jewish, and she said something about the Holocaust, which was 
amazingly stupid, but kind of predictable in the kind the way we talk about race now yeah. and anti-racism, et cetera. And pretty innocent. Like you didn't get the sense that, you know. No, it wasn't a malevolent. She's no. like, there's two white people. It's obviously not yeah, about race. And it's, it's like, like, I get why she's saying that. She's she's not the black David Irving. Or no, she, exactly. She's not like, and by the way, there were no gas chambers. That was not the last. <laughs> but they, they, you know, to universal kind of disgust from people that work at ABC and people left, right and center saying like, wait, you just, you just put her on leave for two weeks for that. It doesn't surprise me because that's how corporate interests, that's how journalists respond to controversy. I mean, you see journalists saying we got to get Joe Rogan off the air and which is a kind of a terrifying thing to see journalists say <laughs> journalist professors having yes. a list of his advertisers and yes, yes. encouraging people to, to not use those exactly products. and to effectively try to get him off the air whatever way it might be that is of course they're right but i don't know if we're in a free speech um, crisis as we are in a free speech panic. And that might sound like a distinction without a difference, but I think there is one. When you look back at this stuff, is this just resonant throughout history that these happen every kind of cycle? Yeah, very much so. But, but I think there's one way of looking at it. If you take sort of the long historical view, we're living in a golden age of free speech. Yeah, sure. Free speech has become a uh, human rights norm. Uh, you have an incredible, strong constitutional protection here in, in the United States. It's one country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, technology just gives us the opp opportunity to, you know, speech is ubiquitous. Yeah. But I would say that if you look a bit closer, then I think that we're actually in a free speech recession and the golden age is in decline. Yeah. Uh, both due to legal uh, changes, especially in, in European democracies. I mean, obviously, authoritarian states, you know, throughout history, the very first victim of authoritarianism is free speech. You see that in the Athenian democracy, uh, when, when that has, was overthrown twice, the very first thing that was overthrown was, was free speech. What I worry about most is probably the culture of free speech, because I think ultimately the laws are, are going to reflect the cultural acceptance and adherence to the principle of free speech yeah. and, and tolerance. And actually, uh, John Stuart Mill, in On Liberty, in an often neglected passage, he says that free speech, it's not enough to be protected against the magistrate. You also have to be worried about society's tendency to impose its views on dissenters through other yeah. means than, than, than laws. And uh, George Orwell says some of the same things. He, he says, actually... After the Second World War, he says British wartime censorship was actually relatively mild. It wasn't Which as bad. he participated in. <laughs> to be clear, he was a censor at the BBC. But he says that the biggest threat is actually specifically people on the left uh, who were sort of pro-communists yeah. and sort of their, the, the liberals' tendency to censor certain uh, views that just couldn't be published. So Animal Farm, for instance, <laughs> took him a long time to find a publisher because – but that was actually the government that sort of suggested to publishers it might not be a good idea. But there's an unpublished uh, foreword that was only published, I think, in 1972, where, where he makes a very eloquent case for, for free speech. And I think that's the it big— It was also, by the way, Victor Galantz, who owned the publishing house, the left-wing publishing house. It was Victor Galantz's publishing uh, refused to publish it. And, I mean, it was after the book about Spain, uh, Omish Catalonia. But the best bit about the Orwell thing is when he sent it to— publishers in America, and I can't remember which one. It was one of the bigger publishing houses. 
um, that sent back a letter and said something to the effect that Americans don't like books about animals. <laughs> it was like, no, that's really not. And not, that's why we're going to publish Charlotte's Web. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, E.B. White has some other stuff, too. But, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, when you talk about communists, right, in the – I see the other side of this now and the exact opposite side of people not learning from history – is that the idea that came up from people on the right when it was the Martin Dyes Committee, with the House on American Activities Committee, various committees after that that lasted, by the way, up until the 19, early 1970s, that said, well, these are people that ultimately want to overthrow free speech. They want to overthrow the United States government and replace it with something you know, very close to what Moscow is pushing because they're agents of Moscow. And so ultimately we need to save free speech by preventing their speech, where obviously, if you look back, if you allow people to talk about this stuff, the Communist Party essentially flamed out in the 1950s. It had an incredible membership in the 1930s and the 40s, etc. After this Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, a lot of people left, and then it really, really fell apart. And it just died on its own. And now, on the other side of this, today, you have the same instinct of people saying that we are in a, a moment of democratic crisis and we need to prevent these people from pushing these ideas out there that are, you know, fostering negative ideas about our democracy and will ultimately bring people like Donald Trump back into power. They're doing the exact same thing that happened to them in the past. They're saying that if there's something, yeah. their goal is to destroy free speech. So we must limit it yeah. to save it. I mean, it's is, like the idea of militant democracy that was developed by this uh, German immigrant professor called Karl Löwenstein, who, who wrote in, he was in the States and wrote these very influential articles in a uh, journal by uh, Columbia University, I think. His basic idea was that, I think it was written in 1937, and he said that European states had sinned by sort of attaching way too much uh, weight to to the principle of free speech when confronted by by fascism. I actually have you a You talk I, about this quite yeah. a bit. Can you talk about that a little bit cuz I've talked about it in the podcast and we've talked about Bernhard Weiss and Der Angriff the Gerber yeah. paper. This is hate speech did exist in the Weimar Republic and did not prevent the triumph of Nazis. I, I use the term the Weimar fallacy. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a term that is developed by a brilliant British professor called Eric Heinze, but I use it a little bit differently from him because the, the Weimar Republic's collapse and the emergence of the Third Reich is very much what motivates hate speech laws, especially in Europe, um, yes, where, so. where they're being tightened. So I have, um, when this comes out, I'll probably have had a an op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal, which is coming out soon, which addresses this this topic. But what, what is so interesting... It's, exactly, it's actually on the Weimar fallacy. It, yeah, it's, it's on... Well, it's on it's because the European Commission, the European Union, is, is now adopting this proposal where it says, we want the power to define hate speech and the minimum criminal punishments for that in all 27 member states. So that has huge ramifications for free speech yeah. in Europe. Boris Johnson's not looking so bad right now. Is he? <laughs> oh my God. But, but I, I think mean, I, physically. But. Yeah, I, mean. I, I think the basic premise is wrong. No, I, I don't think that, you know, the Third Reich and the collapse of uh, of the Weimar Republic can be explained through the narrow prism of free speech and censorship. There yeah. are a lot of factors uh, yeah. at play. So let's not be reductionist. But what is indisputable is that in the Weimar Republic, even though it, it clearly expanded free speech from what had been going on under Bismarck and especially before Bismarck mm -hmm. in Germany, there were well, still... before Germany, yeah. <laughs> yeah, before the unification of Germany, yeah. yeah. Um, the, ra the radio policy said that you could basically only have 
pro-government content. So Nazis and, and communists were not allowed on. And there's a dictator that the quote is something like, it was a policy amounted to something like an aesthetic uh, educational dictatorship. But there were also these emergency decrees that became more and more drastic as the Weimar Republic sort of hurled towards its, its destruction. And so Da Angriff, the newspaper uh, started by Josef Goebbels, was a dozen times or more, it was administratively banned because you had these emergency laws which said that a government, like either federal or state government, could administratively ban a newspaper for, say, a number of weeks or months yeah. if they wrote something that went against the state or that was uh, false information or too extreme. And Josef Goebbels used that, so he proudly proclaimed the Angriff the most frequently banned newspaper <laughs> in, sure. in, in, yeah, in Germany. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the worst, the most depraved anti-Semite of, of, of yeah. Nazism, Julius, Julius Streicher, Streicher yeah, yeah. who was the editor of Der Stürmer uh, and who was justly, I think, executed after Nuremberg because Der Stürmer before 1933 and after 1933, you know. They're different publications. Yeah, especially during the war. It was like explicit incitement to genocide in Dostrima, like something that would not be protected by First Can I Amendment ask you stand. about that? Because because uh, this is an interesting part of your book, and you mention uh, Stryker and Dostrima and, and his execution at Nuremberg. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, it's a much more difficult question, a thorn, the, probably the thorniest question of free speech in the 20th century that I can think of, is that if you read copies of Dishtuma. If you look, I mean, it is, the word often used by scholars, you always see this as pornographic. It is a very kind of pornographic publication. It was published actually in Nuremberg. It was based in Nuremberg. Exactly. And um, they had a publishing arm. They had a children's book, actually, that was uh, called Der Giftpilz, was a, the, the poison mushroom, and it was about how the Jews are going to bring you into the forest and defile your children. And, and there's a very, very famous film called Yudsus that is a very stylized um, film that was shot in, I think, 1941 by one of the, the Third Reich's premier directors, a guy named Veit Harlan, and who was, I think, uh, detained after the war. Another person who would have made a film. There are very few, actually, anti-Semitic films actually made during Nazi times. There are I, about three explicit ones. One of them is another one called De Evige Jude, The Eternal Jew, which is really disgusting. These people, Fritz Hippler was the guy who, de, who made that and was arrested, and he, and he died at old age in the 1990s. The question, though, is that if you're a free speech warrior in this sense, that is speech, right? It's really repulsive. It's some of the most repulsive stuff you can imagine. But Julius Stryker is effectively hanged for speech because he didn't yeah. pull a trigger on anything. No, and I'm not saying I agree yeah. with this or disagree with this. I'm just wondering your take on this because that is somebody that is that is in the 20th century in 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 Europe accused of I shouldn't say nothing but because it seems like I'm kind of diminishing it. But it is essentially nothing but speech. I mean, he was not an actual physical violent act. No, I think when you look at what was printed uh, and what he was convicted for, it was like completely explicit incitement to, to genocide, like Radio Radio Milkolin in, in Rwanda. In Rwanda, yeah. yeah. where they just said, go out and hack people uh, to death. What I think is more interesting is, so he is convicted on a number of times for under a law, which basically against racial, uh, religious offense, because he prints these blood libels yeah. against the Jewish religion, which is a not so subtle way of accusing Jews of engaging in, in blood libel. And he's, he's convicted. So in 1929, He's sentenced, I think, to two months imprisonment, and he leaves the court cheered by 400 porters, and, and he's convicted in his hometown of, of Nuremberg. Less than a year later, uh, in the 1930 elections, 
the Nazis just dramatically increased their share of votes, yeah. including in Nuremberg. So that, again, is an example of how these prosecutions of the Nazis were not an efficient remedy. And the, But the worst part, I think, is that the Nazis used the emergency measures of the Weimar Republic and especially Article 48 of, of the Constitution, which allowed the president to suspend uh, basic freedoms. So, so Hitler convinced Hindenburg to suspend after the Reichstag fire. The very measure that was supposed to protect democracy <laughs> yes. was used to destroy it. To destroy it. So essentially, but e- people, but even yeah, before yeah. that, so on February fourth, for instance, they they the Nazis just escalated the, these sort of um, emergency measures against the press. And there's this diary entry from Joseph Goebbels where he says, "Yes, uh, now the bands are going to pop. Now finally, we have an instruments against the Jewish press who gave us so many problems, and we now we're going to ban them all." Yeah. And so, so to me, the history of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism does not support the thesis that a lack of uh, censorship and restrictions on extreme speech is... Uh, but, but it's actually quite the contrary in the sense that it, you know, helped facilitate yeah, but the would, consolidation you know, of power. No, I'm not saying that if the Weimar Republic had not prosecuted them, then uh, the Nazis would not have gained power. Of course. But I think, you know, we're, we're living in a democracy, in a liberal open democracy, and I think, you know, those who want to restrict free speech should have the burden of proof, right? <laughs> you know, if you, want to, if you want to limit free speech, you should at least, at least be able to say this is a necessary, absolutely necessary step that is also likely to uh, fulfill its purpose. And, and I don't think that is made. And there's another thing that looking into the censorship and repression under Stalin, it's just like astounding what, what was going on in the Soviet Union. And a lot of people who would be completely in favor of restricting Nazis would not be in favor of restricting communists. But if you think that too much free speech can lead to totalitarianism, why on earth would you not be in favor of limiting communists? It's another reminder to always read uh, Joseph Skvoretsky, the Czech-Canadian. He became Canadian after he left after 68. Um, that was the theme of his life's work was just like – People pretend that Nazism and communism are so separate, but like here's the way that their uniforms are the same. Here's the way they do this the same. They repress these things the same. And here's the way that we are mangling ourselves by pretending that there's a huge white gulf. But there's an aspect of the uh, of the Hitler thing. I think it's the, the academic term. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, which, it's important because the only thing that people talk about in history today is always a Hitler reference. So, <laughs> I, I again, and this is the, one of my biggest regrets as my, my tenure as editor of a reason um, is that I was vetoed by my own staff for using. I uh, was going to have the uh, um, the headline of uh, of uh, 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 for Ayn Rand, she's hot and sexy and dead, <laughs> um, and uh, people like I, I don't know what that means. So yeah, I, I think I was going to try to use it for Hitler at some point too, but that was probably <laughs> that, wasn't a good that idea. Would have been ill-advised. Um, but uh, <laughs> but Hitler informed modern like 20th century and to this day 21st century media theory in certainly America and England. I won't speak for Europe in the sense of um, people saw. The rise of the new technology of radio, in particular, but television and film, um, and like there's, it's now we have a mass culture, and these masses can be shaped and manipulated yes. by a cunning uh, sort of spin chieftain uh, yeah. propagandist here, 
and um, and part of that also was the uh, was the War of the Worlds, actually, of the Orson Welles, right? A, a huge, huge myth around that. Huge yeah. myth of how Orson Welles uh, sowed an entire panic along the eastern seaboard and, and throughout uh, by uh, pretending doing this uh, mock um, uh, alien invasion and people freaked out and committed suicide. Almost all of that is just not true. But but it was based in the same fear that this new modern technology can be uniquely used to um, spin up people and cause these terrible, terrible genocidal atrocities. Back, that's the backdrop of the question, which is that um, broadly speaking in this sort of elite versus egalitarian conception and this modern panic that we do have, it's, that's the, I would say the dominant belief among professional media in the United States um, is that we have to be careful right now um, because these new, you know, sort of ground up small d democratic media organs are, are being shaped to manipulate people to do things that are going to get rid of democracy. So my question is, has that argument ever been right? Right. From the perspective of of uh, elite gatekeepers who've been looking at the rabble and thinking that they're getting spun up by a creative propagandist with power and bad intentions. Has that analysis been correct? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, I think I, I would limit myself to say that it's been wrong on a number of occasions, <laughs> but I, I guess it depends a bit, little bit, you know, if you're, if you're the Catholic church, then you're right in worrying about the effects of the printing press, uh, because clearly that means an erosion of your authority and it means uh, people adopting uh, Protestantism and that leads to sort of more questioning religion. And a bit of war. Yeah. And there's a bit of war that yeah. came yeah. out. Yeah. If you're an absolutist ruler, then you're also right to be worried about free speech because uh, ideas spread that, that question your uh, legitimacy of, of absolutist rule. But in democracies, I think it's it's more difficult to find that example. Although I would say, you know, uh, speech is difficult. You can't commit a conspiracy without speech. You can't organize mass atrocities or a coup without speech. So, so speech does involve harms. But most of the examples that I find in the book are very much that that, that elite panic basically leads to proposals. You know, some, sometimes elite panic is driven by legitimate concerns. I think, you know, we, we do live in an age where trust in institutions and even democratic legitimate authority yeah. is, is plummeting. And that is concerning. You know, trust is really important for a healthy functioning sure. society. So, so when trust is plummeting, that's a bad sign. But is the, the remedy to limit free speech and impose uh, censorship, does that improve trust? I don't find any good examples of that. So it, it's very often that the cure is worse than the disease when elite panic results in, yeah. in censorship. But there's one thing that I, that I wanted to return to in, in our sort of Stalin-Hitler. Yeah. didn't find the quote, but it's <laughs> My really, favorite discussion. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that the 1936 Soviet constitution included – in Article 123, an obligation to prohibit hate speech. <laughs> and and that's how it's framed? <laughs> yeah. This is where you should have a, an assistant that could find the, the quote for me. She's out getting us drinks right now. <laughs> yeah. She'll be back in a minute. Um, and this becomes really crucial in 1948 when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is being adopted and also later. So you have basically after World War II, you have a huge debate about 
you know, the limits of free speech and international human rights. And the Soviets are absolutely adamant that there must be an obligation to prohibit hate speech in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, yes, you can have free speech with some limits, but you also must have an obligation to prohibit hate speech. And the most eloquent defender of free speech at that point is Eleanor Roosevelt, who's, mm-hmm. who's the first chair of the Commission on Human Rights. And she gives you know, a number of incredible speeches that really warn against this Soviet concept. Initially, the Western states sort of win the battle. So it's not that all European democracies are opposed to limits on free speech based on uh, on hate speech, but they recognize that a- an obligation to prohibit hate speech in an international human mm-hmm. rights instrument that is being suggested by the Soviet Union, uh, <laughs> that could go wrong. But then, you know, when a legally binding convention is being adopted in, in 1966, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Soviets win. And one of the reasons they win is that you have a, not a number of new recently decolonized states. Mm. And a lot of them have been subjected to a lot of racist censorship, explicitly racist censorship. We can get back to how the British Empire used racist censorship. And and so they were probably not impressed by the European states warning against the dangers <laughs> of censorship. But the, the interesting thing is that the Soviets, their proposal is more or less a verbatim copy of the 1936 Stalin <laughs> uh, co- constitution. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's really why prohibition or an obligation to prohibit censorship is, has been introduced in international human rights law is very much to do with the Soviet Union. And I think that's frightening. To Matt's point, and if you want to find that passage, I don't know if you're actually looking for it still, but I'll give you a second to do so. But, but to your point, um, you know, it is interesting when I, I've been reading um, the historian Robert Galletoli's new book, who's fantastic, and he has, he's probably in his 80s at this point, and he has a, a new book called Hitler's True Believers. He's written a lot about popular opinion in the Third Reich. By the way, that Hitler's fill in the blank, you know, yes, uh, plural something. noun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine wrote yeah. Hitler's Secret Bankers, yeah. Adam Lepore. <laughs> yeah, like yeah it's, that's right, it's Adam Lepore. It's a, it's a, a book about Milosevic too, right? Sure did. The book is fairly interesting at the beginning. I mean, he, he, has a, he has a bit about it, and I'm just reading it a couple of weeks ago, where he talks about this idea of the, the magnetic Hitler, we've all heard this, about, about his charisma. And he has, a bit, he has a whole bit about this idea of what charisma is, like definitionally and what we use it to, to mean now, that the spellbinding speaker, right? And in the Nazi context, you hear this a lot. You hear um, Lenny Riefenstahl mentioned, uh, Triumph of the Will. You hear uh, propaganda mentioned, which is widely and, and wildly misunderstood of what actual propaganda ministry propaganda was. I mean, Joseph Goebbels' main idea of Nazi propaganda was that people should be lost in fantasy rather than be confronted with reality. That's not actually what it was. I mean, there were films, but there were very, very few. It was mostly big costume dramas. The last film the Nazis ever made, by the way, the last big film was a film called Kohlberg. And I think it was actually Veit Harlan who did Jesus. And they actually took troops they were fighting to save the, the Reich on the Eastern Front to act as extras in this huge historical drama called Kohlberg, which was about the fall of Kohlberg in the Napoleonic Wars and how these people of Kohlberg put up this magnificent fight. It included one of the biggest stars of the Third Reich, a Swedish woman named Christina Soderbaum. It was this big, big epic, and it came out in, in you know, it was a color film. 
And this was the most propagandistic they got, right? It was like these kind of things that are redolent of the past. But the reason I bring this up is that people often do this in the sense that if only these films put Lenny Riefenstahl on trial, put these you know people who made newspapers, et cetera, and I agree with Jakob that, that Julius Stryker is a, a, a very different example, is that they were hypnotized by these things. And this is what we have now in a sense, and I'm not making a Nazi comparison, but the sense of when you hear Rogan, people are like, well, he's peddling misinformation, which by the way, most of the people who I've talked to about this don't know what the misinformation he's peddling is. And how bad it is, is how he often not, he does how it. How often is he having people that have contrary views on, et cetera? And I'm not saying I know this one way or another, but nobody else does either. But it is this thing that if you prevent this hypnotic person, what that does is something very obvious. When you talk about Hitler being the hypnotic speaker, right? This one who could, could entrance entire audiences and they'd see this, you know, foaming at the mouth man, but he was making this argument on film and the rest of it on Lenny Riefenstahl's Trump of the World, et cetera. It completely destroys, doesn't necessitate in any way, context for what's actually happening. It pushes everything out the door. What is, because as, as Jacob said, like, you know, there's a number of things that are going on. You can't say hate speech laws or free the free press or whatever is itself 80%, 90%, 100% of what allowed the Third Reich to come into existence in 1933. You can't say that. It just, it, it makes no sense. But it, when you have these conversations about hypnotic leaders and these people that are being allowed, you're allowed to see them. And when you hear them over the airways, when you hear somebody, you know, as a, a show on, on YouTube, it totally destroys what Matt Rosenberg, our, our previous guest, the New York Times journalist, who said when in this Rogan debate, maybe we should ask ourselves why they're not listening to us. And they're listening to him at a much greater clip than they're reading our stuff. And when you talk about we have to get rid of this one individual who is so very good at delivering bad information, you effectively destroy any conversation about what the context and what the conditions are that are creating this. And you also engage in what I have long called uh, from the old days in uh, Central Europe, um, the sheep theory, right? This is a very um, uh, condescending theory towards your fellow man that they are sheep. They're just ready for the shepherd to yeah. flock them into some really bad thing uh, because they don't have agency. So they don't the have will. Yeah. Will yeah, yeah yeah. If we can just like keep the shepherd from being able to do his work, then some somehow that's all going to be better. That is a weird way to uh, to champion and uh, democracy. I mean, literally the same people who engage in on a daily basis, the sheep theory. Yeah. Oh, my grandpa watches Fox news and whatever Tucker Carlson tells him he does. And that's why X, Y, and Z. Um, some of those things are, are, are correlative. I'm not going to deny that, but to say that your grandpa doesn't have the free will to make up his or her own mind, um, is not very charitable towards that person. And There's, to do that, <laughs> yeah. and to do that while you're also, um, you know, rushing to CNN to watch Jim Acosta's democracy in peril segments. Yeah. What do you think the fucking word democracy means, you son of a bitch? Yeah. Democracy and the democratization of media means that there's access for the little people who you think are fucking sheep, right? You're going to have to sort out one of those stories one way or the other. I have uh, always thought that those who are saying um, embracing sheep theory in in this, you know, admittedly narrow context when I was in Slovakia with Vladimir Mechiar, who was sort of a magnetic personality who would always seem to win an election no matter what crazy, horrible thing that he said. He's very Trumpian in a, a lot of different ways. Um, 
Uh, and so the people who hated Metcher are like, well, if we just had our own TV station or like prevented him from having his, um, then these stupid people wouldn't be impelled to vote for him. All of that was just a way to say that they didn't know how to talk to the stupid people. Yes. The people who were competing against Vladimir Metcher, in fact, one of the guys who did, um, uh, a former, I think, uh, foreign minister of Czechoslovakia or close to it, Milan Kinashko, um, said, well, Metcher goes to those little towns. And like campaigns there, they I mean, would expect. Of course, those villagers. Yeah, that's democracy, you son of a bitch. Yeah, he yeah. like competed for votes, and so people were always looking for the shortcut so that they could use those tools in the same way too, while lamenting that. And that's not a way to get anyone's vote to say that you're a automaton that it's going to be spun up by whatever some and charismatic. I, I, I want to give this says. over to Jacob, but to to that point, I think one of the most common refrains in this podcast, going back many years is the Engels idea of false consciousness. And this is essentially what happened to, you know, Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? What's wrong? What was it? It was What's the Matter, what's with, the matter Kansas, with Kansas? Right? And effectively the idea is why aren't they voting with their own self-interest, right? They're voting against their own self-interest, which the whole premise is insane because you consider that the guy that lives in the Upper West Side knows the self-interest of somebody in Kansas. I'm dictating what your self-interest should be, you rubes. Like, why do you not care about getting, you know, free childcare when you have X number of children? Why do you care about abortion? It's like, well, they do. And maybe you should go and try to find out why and perhaps try to convince them. And that feeds into this kind of idea of like, if we can only shut down the Tucker Carlson's of the world. And I, and I said, when I was talking to John Ronson the other day, I said, I, you know, I'm going to coin a phrase of ideological dementia is what happens to people that are very, very clever people that I see them in their eighties. And now they're watching, you know, Newsmax. And I'm like, what the fuck happened to these people? But there's literally no changing that. There's nothing that you can do some sort of magic pill that's going to prevent that. But the idea that if we prevent this stuff, it's like taking the battery out of the back of the robot and they all just kind of slump. And it's like, okay, everything's fine now. If you put it back in, they might watch uh, Tucker Carlson again. It's like, it's the wrong frame. We have the wrong frame about talking about all this stuff. So Jacob, we've, you've been looking in your own book. Yeah. Very pompous when you're in the corner, just reading your own book. Good stuff, man. (laughs) Gently caressing myself. (laughs) Reading exactly my, my, how my I read prose. your book too. Weirdly, <laughs> yeah. I'll remove my hands before I climax. Uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things uh, is is also that this idea of how efficient propaganda is questionable. So I, I just very yeah. uh, Aldous Huxley has a great quote, which I think is really spot on. He writes in 1936, "Propaganda gives force and direction to the successive movements of popular feeling and desire." But it does not do much to create these movements. The propagandist is a man who canalizes an already existing stream in a land where there's no water. He digs in vain. That basically says that, yes, in an American context, the MAGA gospel will be efficient towards those who are already preaching to the to the choir. It, it does not mean that misinformation will, Michael Moynihan, go, maybe Michael Moynihan, but you know, not Matt Welsh, goes on <laughs> and, and, and you know, looks at Tucker Carlson and suddenly you come away uh, thinking that January 6th was like the FBI, a false flag. Yeah, or, 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 uh, or and you even see that in a country like, and sorry for going back to the Third Reich. It always goes back to the Third Reich. Yeah. You, you, you actually see a huge difference in anti-Semitic propaganda was most efficient in those parts of the country where anti-Semitism was already was most, yeah. most prevalent. And also you see it, those who had grown up during the Weimar Republic and had been subjected to a public sphere with different op- opinions 
were much less likely to be to become committed Nazis mm -hmm. than those, you know, children who were not just subjected to propaganda, but who were actually brainwashed in Hitler Youth and so on, they became much more anti-Semitic. And that, I think, uh, shows the strength of democracies that they build up antibodies towards complete uh, propaganda and re intellectual regimentation. O of course, there will always be those who adopt crazy ideas, but sort of the idea that you can even a charismatic leader can just make uh, an entire country become uh, crazy is difficult to sustain, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole body of literature on this that never ends, right? I mean, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen's book in 1996, Hitler's Willing Executioner, is... Again, uh, uh, was, what, Hitler's film blank, blank, blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plural noun. Yeah. <laughs> Hitler's <laughs> Ridiculous Dogs. That one didn't really do very well. I don't know why they even wrote that. Um, but yeah. I would totally read that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was one that was really ridiculous. <laughs> All of that literature is basically trying to figure out that question. And now we have the debate now about free speech that invokes Nazism and takes this vein of scholarship that has labored in the kind of salt mines of historiography about modern Germany, trying to spot this stuff and then reduces it all to propaganda and hate speech and people were, were transfixed by that. And keeping in mind that in the last free elections in Germany, the second last free election, the Nazis hit their peak and they were actually going down on the last free election, which is kind of an interesting thing, is they were losing popularity. The KPD, the, the communists, were it was the two of them were, were doing very... It, Robert Glaley actually points this out, that the number of uh, parties that had the word socialist in the title, like combined like 80% of the vote at some point, <laughs> and national socialists, you know, the Communist Party, the Social Democrats, etc. And, you know, there was a time in that period, and this is well documented, that Nazi propaganda laid off of um, anti-Semitic propaganda. It was like a specific policy was to lay off this stuff to gain kind of mass support, because as Jacob was saying, it didn't resonate in certain parts of the country, among others. And this is people that are having the same access to the same material. The, I, I, this is why I, I resent the constant invocation of fascism in the current American debate, it's usually, and sometimes it's from people who actually know a lot about fascism, like Timothy Snyder, who has disappointed me numerous times in the past couple of years. But that invocation of Nazism and the idea of hate speech is, is serves to only diminish all of this scholarly work that says, how did the country of Goethe and Schiller become the country of Bergen, Belsen, and Auschwitz? That's a complicated question. And particularly when you look at the work of somebody like Christopher Browning, who is the kind of counterpoint to Daniel Goldhagen. And the idea of this is, you know, it was about ordinary Germans. This is the question that everybody asks. How do ordinary people who did not grow up under uh, Nazism, did not have to join the Hitler Youth or the League of German Girls or the, the female equivalent, how did they become hardened killers? In the Christopher Browning's book, which I recommend to everybody, is called Ordinary Men, and it follows a police battalion unit in occupied, essentially occupied Ukraine, Poland, etc. They were not prone to propaganda. They were postmen. They were like, you know, people, there was the baker in the town and the rest of it, and how they allowed themselves to do that. And these are people that were just, you know, not in the kind of belly of the Nazi beast being propagandized to all the time. They're just ordinary people. And so when you have these conversations about hate speech, this is what the Germans did, and Jacob's book does a very good job of this, is we have to learn from them and do what they didn't do. Well, no, 
if you're doing that, you're not reading any of the actual history of this stuff because the history of this stuff is very complicated. And what, what did create that is something that if any one scholar knew, they could raise the brass ring and said, I've won. I've figured it out. Nobody has figured it out. I mentioned before that uh, the European Commission is proposing th this change so that it can define hate speech. And when you read the justifications for it, they cite an increase, a tsunami of hatred, an increase during the pandemic. Yeah. Which is already, you know, that's a warning uh, sign that, you know, okay, we'll use a, a health crisis to adopt hate speech. But they also it, very interestingly mention that uh, an increase in online hate speech in Germany and France. And Germany and France are not only the two most influential uh, countries of the European Union, they're also two countries that have a zero tolerance policy zero. towards uh, anti Semitism. If in I mean, remember, David Irving went to prison in Austria for something that yeah, he was published but, but, but in. You, was, know, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in France, they have laws that means that pro-Palestinian activists who wants to boycott Israel, they get punished for hate speech. Mm -hmm. They shut down anti-Israeli demonstrations. Comedian, who's not very funny. Jidane. Uh, criminally convicted for, for his quote-unquote, comedy skits that were uh, anti-Semitic. In, in and also for a physical gesture yeah, called the canal, yeah, which, the uh, yeah. which uh, it, it's like a half Nazi salute. Yeah. It's not a Nazi salute. Yeah. And he's just like, he's doing it to be a dick, uh, but also to make fun of the prohibition against Nazi salutes. And by the way, he became more anti-Semitic after being prosecuted. Yeah. It, and I don't know if that was just becoming yeah. publicly more anti-Semitic and he was hiding it before, but he became like actively a Holocaust denier after that. But my favorite example is this German guy who had a mixed race daughter and then he thought that she was being subjected to racism by this public employment agency, I think. And so he has a blog and he played the Nazi card by sort of taking Heinrich Himmler in a Nazi uniform and then photoshopping, I think, the, the face of one of the employees sure. uh, uh, onto it and posting it on his blog and saying that my daughter has been subjected to racism. And he was convicted of, you know, using a prohibited totalitarian symbol, even though, you know, quite clearly he was not propagating or justifying or making an apology for, for Nazism. He was using the Nazi card in a not-so-subtle manner and probably being completely uh, annoying. But that's the level that France and Germany goes to. Let me to. ask you about this, because it's really funny that you say that, because we had a conversation on the last podcast, and we've had a conversation in our text messages about this, of the, these, the trucker uh, protests in Canada. A lot of these headlines that said, you know, uh, you know, Nazi symbols, swastikas at this trucker thing. And the one that I can see that is verifiable is a Canadian flag with a swastika drawn on it, uh, saying that the Canadian government with their COVID restrictions are being fascist, right? And this is a context thing that is not really conveyed in the headlines, mm. that people are flying swastika flags is rather different than someone acknowledging that swastika is a symbol of evil exactly. and then associating a government that they think is yeah. evil and, you know, wrongly or, or, or rightly. What is that in history? I mean, is this a unique moment where context has been... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you say the N-word talking about a rap song or talking about how it's a bad word and getting you know thrown out of your job or, or being not in the U.S. prosecuted. But people, like you say, the German example of this guy saying, you're a fucking Nazi because my daughter is mixed race and you're being racist towards her. And that person being prosecuted for peddling Nazi symbols 
And that's not what the law is actually about. Is this unique to now? No, I, I mean, yeah, if you go back to uh, one of my f- favorite examples is, uh, I don't remember the exact details, but like under Stalin, censorship just became so extreme because yeah. Stalin himself was deeply, deeply immersed in the in, in the system of censorship. So he was like an avid reader, uh, all kinds of literature, reading history and plays. So he would be like the chief censor of the whole system. Literally marking them up with his own pen. Marking it up yeah. with like, I really recommend Simon Sabak Montefiore's uh, yeah. a, a Stalin biography. It's really... Yeah. There are some, two. The Court of the Red yeah. Tsar is great, but the yeah. young Stalin one's very good too. Yeah, but the Court of the Red Tsar is like a- amazing. And, and, and much of it actually revolves around uh, censorship. But the paranoia just grew to such a level that so there was this di- dictates by the the Glavlit, which was the the censorship office of the Soviet Union at the time there was a curl on the photo of some communist bigwig his his hair was curled in such a manner that it could be confused as a swastika and therefore it was forbidden mm. you know th- these kind of dictates because the paranoia just grew throughout uh, the system you also saw it actually before that in in Tsarist Russia where the the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen would be uh, prohibited and sort of a reference to free air in an oven would also be <laughs> so the more paranoid you you get the the less context that means so even the words i mean there was a film that was released in germany in 1944, with a very big star called Hans Albers, and it was a color film about, you know, not a political film, it was set in Hamburg, and the name of the film is Große Freiheit Nummer 7, and they added the Nummer 7, number 7, because Große Freiheit means the great freedom, and that wasn't too much to even say the great freedom. You had to add this appendage to say Große Freiheit Nummer 7, to make sure that it wasn't like just saying great freedom, you didn't want that in in the name of a film. That kind of crazy paranoia of just the instinct of words. And now I don't think that can happen again in the American context. I'm not saying about the European context because we have, you know, podcasts like this, we have Twitter, but every day the instinct is there. You know, John McWhorter points out something. I think Camille mentioned the other day was the guy who is a professor at, I think UCLA or a a, a college in, in Los Angeles. And I don't know if he was a philologist or something, but he was talking about the language. He was talking about uh, Mandarin and said a word that if said with a slightly different stress in, in English would be the N word. But he, this is not in what, his what? brain. Uh, not Chinese. I don't understand. What, what is that? Uh, it's um, um, person of color. <laughs> it's ninja. Say, ninja. You say person of color in Mandarin. But he said this. Look, this is, I, I don't want to get canceled either. I'm, you, trust me, I, I, I learned my lesson. You know, don't touch the hot stove too many times. He said this and he was not only sanctioned because someone said that word sounded like something that was bad. He was sanctioned for this. And I think he was put on leave yeah. and wasn't allowed to teach his class. And it's like, yeah, that stuff I don't believe is going to take root in larger government institutions in America. I don't think it can. I think there's dangers of this stuff in smaller levels. But the thing for me is the instinct of so much that I see in your book is the same today. It doesn't you know, I, 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 I think it could certainly take hold. Like you do? If, when, when I, you know... Okay. Okay, so if you go back 100 years, the First Amendment had the exact same wording as today. Yeah. But the Supreme Court would take a case of some radical socialist who advocated uh, against involvement in World War One and who were convicted to 10 years in prison. And they'd say, yeah, of course, yeah. that's not covered by the First Amendment. 
Uh, Fire that, in a crowded theater, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Yeah. If the culture of free speech changes in this country, then, which it is, I yes, think. I think why, it's inarguable. Why, if law schools, for instance, become wedded to uh, ideas that see free speech as just one value that competes with others and one that can undermine other values, why wouldn't it? be changed in 10 or 20 or 30 years uh, down the line. Georgetown Law. Yeah. Um, the, the Ilya Shapiro uh, case. Yeah, yeah. The, they, they have a, an estimate on their website, the university's own website, of uh, total, I think it's the, the term of art is a total uh, cost uh, estimate of your year uh, in law school there. Um, and they break it down. Um, the tuition, if you're a full-time student, is a $69,000, just tuition, $69,000. <laughs> um, and then other kind of things, the total cost when, when you factor in the lodging and everything else is $99,000 a year to attend Georgetown Law. And right now you have the dean um, who had hired uh, Ilya Shapiro and who's been furiously apologizing to the black student union, some other uh, student and I presume faculty groups too, saying that, you know, I'm sorry that I'll let you down and all this kind of stuff. Um, those uh, students are asking for, and I wish I was making this up, a crying room. What? That's not true. That is. Yesterday, National Review. <laughs> no, 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 it is. It's like, we, we need. <laughs> soon I'm going to tell the moon about the crying room. <laughs> um, yes. They're like, we need a place to go for no. when we feel. No. Yes. Not real. Yes. No. The, the, the crying room is a quote in students addressing the dean who was. Look up crying room in Georgetown. It's amazing. So I'm, what I'm thinking is once Georgetown, which is one of the best law schools in the country, it's seated right next to the position of power. It's, I think, the oldest or close to the oldest university or law school uh, in the country, Jesuits from way back when. Um, uh, so if they add the crying room, then I think the tuition goes to 70 and the uh, total cost is going to go to 100. The final get to the six-figure annual cost. But no, if that is if that is not even the dominant ethos, but the 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 uh, the the kind of the the ethos that has the power in the room yeah. to make the head of the university like say you know we're going to look into a place so that everyone can feel comfortable and and look if um if if you feel uncomfortable and that you need to go you can always. Talk to me, the dean of a law university, about how these upsetting words. <laughs> As I said before, if this is America's cry. future lawyers, we're totally we're fucked. fucked. Yeah. This is astounding to me because one of the reasons, I, I would say probably one of the most important reasons why the First Amendment today is the most speech protective constitutional pr mm. provision in the world, at least when it comes to sort of political speech. It's because of the civil rights movement. Because, you know, NWACP won a number of landmark cases yeah. that dramatically expanded First Amendment freedoms. Those who won those cases were probably subjected to abuse and, and racism that was a lot worse than the clumsy tweets of Ilya uh, Shapiro. And I think that's really one of the most important takeaways from my book in my humble opinion, <laughs> is that, that free speech has really, it may be the most powerful engine of equality that human beings have ever stumbled upon. So if you look at statistics, 
I just looked this up, and now that I've had five glass of, glasses of That's sake. That's what we do to people who come uh, on the show. I, I don't, I don't Especially remember. Especially when they bring but, it. But, 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 so, so I think Gallup said that 94% of Americans accept interracial marriage, and it was like 4% in 1958. Yeah. It was, is it 70% maybe that accept a gay marriage, which is also it's like... pretty high. Now, a, yeah. Even a, a majority among Republicans. Yeah. And also just in the past decade, there's now a majority of Americans that believe in evolution. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Which has been a low number for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But those instances of progress, that social change did not come about by censoring people with the different it did not come about through re repressing speech it actually a l large part of it is because of speech you know it's such a trope the 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 idea that you fight bad speech with good speech or better speech because you know we we disagree about what is good speech and bad speech but at a fundamental level it still is a sound argument in the civil rights movement being able to demonstrate to the american public the evils of racial segregation had a massive impact on attitudes. I quote sort of uh, a speech by Nelson Mandela in 1994, shortly before he won the presidential election in South Africa. And he said, you know, he gives this speech where he really says that, that free speech was essential to dismantle apartheid South, uh, in, in South Africa because apartheid South Africa was really, really, you know, it was not just institutionalized racism they you know they had the jacobson index which was their yeah, index of, of, right. of censorship yeah. they had hate speech laws which yes. protected the white man so mm -hmm. roots was banned for being hate speech against the white man but he basically said we could rely on the international media human rights organizations and so on to shine a light on what was going on in apartheid south africa and ultimately the price just became too high and it could no longer be be justified another great champion of free speech, in my opinion, was Mahatma Gandhi. So uh, British colonialism introduced a number of very re restrictive speech crimes in, in India to sort of quell anti-colonial protests. And Gandhi was sentenced to six years in prison for sedition. And he gave a great speech in 1921, where he basically offered a sort of his vision of free speech that was much more speech protective than what followed under the First Amendment at the time mm -hmm. in 1921. He was sort of coming close to saying that free speech should only could be limited if you incited to violence, basically. And he called sort of free speech and freedom of association the, the two lungs that are absolutely necessary for a man to breathe the free air or to ensure sure liberty. The last example would for me would be two more. We have time. <laughs> <laughs> Olympe de Gouges, this French revolutionary uh, woman who wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Women. Now, she was such a boss lady. So in 1788, she wrote an abolitionist play that had to be pulled from the stage in Paris because it was heckled by pro-slavery People. And then uh, she wrote this Declaration on the Rights of Women saying, you know, if women have the right to be guillotined, they should also have the right to participate in public debate. And sadly, she was, she was guillotined uh, in the end. Um, <laughs> That's the twist in that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The favorite one, like if you, if you want the best arguments to free speech and you want it sort of condensed, you have to go to Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And his plea for free speech in Boston, a speech that he writes in 1860 because he had been at an abolitionist meeting that was disrupted by these well-to-do white Bostonians who didn't want a sort of abolitionists to cause too much trouble, you know, disrupt Shocker. their 
commercial interests in, in the South and threatening the Union. And he writes this speech, which addresses all the themes that we discussed today, safety and harm, power and privilege, racism, racial justice, the public-private distinction, cancel culture, all of those are packed in one and a half page. And he just comes down on the side of saying sort of basically free speech does not depend on the color of your skin or the size of your wallet. It's just based on the simple quality of your manhood and there let it rest forever. Mm. And that's just, to me, that's that, that's the essence of, of free speech. You, you say, it's, it's funny because it's crazy to think that in 2008, Barack Obama ran for president opposing gay marriage because that's which way <laughs> the wind blows. As Bob Dylan said, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And he didn't, right? Also, they gave the name to the terrorist group, the weathermen. So I probably shouldn't quote that lyric. But it's, it's not but six years later that one of the first examples of this is the Mozilla CEO, I guess Netscape was the first browser and then uh, Firefox, who was forced to step down in 2014 for his opposition to gay marriage. And I think he had what, funded something. Uh, yeah, there's a proposition, some money the proposition in California. In California. And he, you know, the, the free speech was the wonderful thing that got us to this point of having these debates. And then once the principle was established, it was time to terrorize those who had different views, which I find is six years. I don't find them reprehensible. I just find them wrong and something I completely disagree with. And I'm glad that we're at 70% or whatever it is now that, that people agree with something that I think is, is the right, the right idea. Although the number of people who are willing to imagine their own offspring, marrying someone from an opposite political tribe. Yeah, that's now it's plummeted. plummeted. It's yeah. almost, you wow. know, that, has gone crazy. And this is, you know, and one of the other things of that, we have a very strong tradition of free speech in this country. We have the First Amendment, etc. When I go to Europe and I see people being prosecuted or people tweeting something and being visited by the police in the UK or, you know, making your dog do a little, the pug dog do a little Nazi salute <laughs> and standing in front of a judge in Scotland. I mean, this is wild to me. But what is even wilder to me is that these days is in this country is the instinct that people have to want that to exist in America and usually don't understand that it doesn't. If you talk to people, and I've tried this before, that to tell them that we do not have hate speech laws because of the existence of hate crimes, they believe that hate speech is probably a category that we that we um, that exists here. And one of the reasons that I bring this up is I, I saw something the other day. I tried to find it. And I couldn't find it. But, you know, the funny thing is I found something that was in the same area, the same, you know, story, the same instinct, the same state in Florida, um, within a couple of months of, uh, of this podcast, too. And it were, uh, this, these were um, anti-Semitic flyers. It was a similar thing. It was a racist flyer. And I couldn't find the right story, but this is one that's similar. And they were in Miami Beach, a big Jewish community there, flyers put under people's uh, windshield wipers. And uh, in the story that this is, it wasn't as, as sharp as the one that I found earlier, but it's a very similar instinct that uh, the police, the Miami Beach police, said the department is aware of the flyers in actively investigating to determine their origin. Why? Why is that? And there's, it goes on further, please contact us if you have any other information. For what purpose? I mean, I know this is not a popular thing to say these days. But those flyers, if you read them, 
are largely incoherent, clearly <laughs> written by somebody who's, you know, had about a year of schooling in their life and a bunch of other years watching David Irving videos online or something. And they're just flatly, stupidly anti-Semitic. But what has this person done that's illegal? We are in a place now that they know that nothing can happen to them. You can maybe try to find some intimidation law or something like that. But it'd be a hard sell to put somebody in jail for distributing a flyer that has views that you don't like, despite the fact those views are pretty reprehensible. But in the news stories of both of these things I've seen recently, very casually, the news writer says the police are looking into it. If you have information, please call the police. What do the police have to do with this at all? I don't like the fact that we're lurching towards this because the instinct is these people are garbage. They are. I agree with you. The stuff that they're peddling is garbage. I couldn't agree with you more. It's worse than garbage. Why are you saying that you shouldn't get the cops involved? I mean, these people are are harassing. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. What we do here is we allow people to publish, to put out their shitty flyers. And one of the greatest things about this is the one that I was trying to find. There was a video that was associated with somebody coming around and pub, you know, posting. They, they had like a security camera that caught them. And it was in the middle of the night. And they had a fucking balaclava on to, pu- to publish their racist bullshit in the neighborhood. Because they don't want to come out and say it. You know, 40 years ago, people didn't have balaclavas on. They had people in Congress that supported them for this <laughs> stuff. They had like Southern Dixiecrats that would argue on their behalf. You had people that would un- end up running for president and do fairly well, George Wallace. They were standing in the way of racial minorities getting into school. You couldn't do this. This was something that people were fucking proud of and voted for. Now you wear a goddamn balaclava in the dark of the night to put your dumb little flyer out that nobody's going to respond to anyway. And that does not contain any actionable threat no. at all. Yeah. And let's get the police involved. Yeah, the police aren't going to do anything. But I, I just don't like the instinct that in the stories we say, so the police have been notified. I just don't understand why they've been notified. Somebody is exercising their dumb speech. And speech does not make caveats for smart Mm. speech and stupid speech. What I would worry about if I was American and if there were sort of the the, the First Amendment was sort of slowly rolled back, First Amendment, current First Amendment protections to allow for hate speech and and the like, people criticize free speech for being weaponized against democracy. But I think you would see in this country the weaponization of free speech restrictions to an extent that would really threaten <laughs> free speech as such. I think you would see that in, for instance, in southern states, you would see hate speech laws and laws restricting free speech being weaponized against liberals. 100%. You know, in, in California, in New York, they would it would be the complete opposite, you know. And what would you do, you know, if you wrote something online, yeah. you cross state lines, well, something would be illegal in this day. Gotta but, go on but, a cruise. But, but, <laughs> international yeah. waters. Yeah, yeah. Hate, and, a hate speech cruise. The fifth column hate speech cruise. Good idea. I think, I think Greg Lukianov of, of, of FIRE made a great point in a recent, recent piece he wrote about how this wave of uh, Republican-sponsored bills targeting uh, critical race theory or at least divisive concept about gender and race and even history that sometimes extends to higher education, you know, how they basically use some of the same language that hate speech laws are based upon. So you see this scope creep whenever you introduce free speech restrictions that they can be used uh, against you. And especially this is why I think it's so dangerous for minorities to argue for for right. speech restrictions because you're never more than a majority away 
of being the target rather than the beneficiary of, of laws against hatred. And, and you know, it's funny, you bring up a, a great example of that too, of that people who believe these things are the special domain of themselves and themselves only on their side. I mean, we've talked about this before, of that executive power in this country was was placed, you know, ever more in the hands of the presidency. And people said, oh, this is terrible. And then Obama comes into power and says, this is great. And every president since has ratcheted up. And somebody's got to say, this is great for me, but the next guy's going to do the same thing. When it comes to the CRT stuff, is that when when people say, oh, we're gonna, they're going to ban books and they have this censorious instinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've talked about that quite a bit in this and gotten a lot of shit for it too. I'm talking about that in this podcast. But let's think about this in the sense that the two stories that I saw this week was one, some, you know, pissant little school district in Tennessee or something didn't want Art Spiegelman's mouse uh, because there was nudity. I don't, I didn't think yes. mouse were, mice were clothes in the first place, but apparently there's mouse nudity and violence, et cetera. Someone ODing in the bathtub doesn't have a shirt on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something like that. And like, and like, oh my God. And they want to take away, um, you know, my Angelou book or, or whatever. And we think it's terrible. And the Nicole Hannah Jones of the world and they line up behind it and say, can you believe these scumbags? I don't see a single tweet from her. Um, we've talked about both sides. Uh, denouncing the ban in Seattle or the removal in Seattle of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is coming from the other side and saying the N-word is used, the lawyer doesn't like valorize the victims enough. It's still coming from a white perspective, all of this nonsense. I mean, that is the type of thing that people don't understand, or, or maybe they do understand. They don't. They don't care to actually. To be fair, I, th- I think both Nicole Hannah Jones and Jason Stanley were oh, uh, they, b- b- very critical of uh, the Ilya Shapiro. Um, yes, thing. yeah, uh, yeah, I saw yeah, that, yeah. and I think that's important because good. Because, yeah. b- because they did basically say, "Well, he's a racist, but you shouldn't fire him." <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. If they, I don't know. I, you know, people <laughs> a lot of that. I don't know if it's but, them but, in particular, but I've seen a lot of that, and I think that's really good because you know it's it's one of the things that I track in this book is is the concept of Milton's curse. So John Milton, the, the famous English poet, who in 1644 wrote uh, Areopagitica which argues against pre-publication censorship. But when you read it more carefully, it's really just a defense of mainline Protestants' right yeah. to, to, to publish things, and certainly not Catholics, and certainly not atheists, and, or, or other people, you know, those books should be burned. And you see that again and again throughout history, that you know, people will have this unprincipled approach to free speech. That's a huge danger. So, so I was pleasantly pleased to see Jason Stanley and, and Nicole Hannah Jones saying uh, Georgetown should get their act together on, on the Shapiro. Look, case. I think that that's a good thing too. I think there's a little bit of ass covering sometimes when I see that of like I have to go for the mat to, to the mat for this person, but I'm I don't really mean it. I, I can't actually adjudicate that, so I don't want to say that that that's the motivation. So it is great that is actually happening, but I do believe that there's some people that don't understand this instinct and the power to censor people is not going to stay dormant when the other people take power. Yeah. And also like, it's not going to um, like in the case of the Joe Rogan, Spotify and Neil Young flap. Um, that's when suddenly people start using libertarian arguments for, for censorship saying like, Hey, look, there's no you know government of all, even though Jen Psaki said Tuesday of this week, like Spotify, if, you know, Spotify is doing good by having little warning signs, but they need to do more. So like, okay, it's not censorship, but then you've just encouraged the White House to go in. And, and by the way, Joe Biden has said, of course, that social media is killing people. 
And the mm-hmm. Surgeon General has also launched this big like anti-misinformation um, campaign. But this, the, there's a naive belief that our private sector – sensoriousness or sensorialness or however you're supposed to say it uh, two different slightly different meanings of those <laughs> words apparently came an issue this week at reason um uh that that's going to somehow stay contained and that it's not going to infect things no it, it is and and the crt and increased uh, parental interest in curriculum and what's at school libraries is definitely part of it as is uh alexandria ocasio-cortez uh, in an interview that was published uh, yesterday, Yahoo News, saying that Facebook obviously needs to be broken up because it is engaging in sabotage of global uh, COVID yeah, efforts yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that we have to we have to do something about it. It's not going to stay contained. So if you are using your decreased uh, uh, sense of trust of institutions and particularly the other side of your political argument, you are absolutely going to pick up the club of censorship and it is absolutely not going to be contained in the private sector. This is the problem. And the other problem that is pursuant to the exact same thing that you're worried about, Jacob, is the Barry Friedman argument. He wrote a book about 10 years ago, um, uh, legal scholar, uh, analyst, um, basically saying that the Supreme Court Regardless of what you might think about its politics, its composition, its philosophies, basically it doesn't get too far out away from public opinion. Um, and this is my uh, argument against the Ken White Pope hats of the world who said there is no such thing as a culture of free speech. That's yeah. a misnomer. Free speech is only a question of where speech arguments are within the context of government. And I've been making the argument for a long time that – if you look at Barry Friedman, if our private sector culture of free speech is degraded, and it just is, people, people are waking up in the morning and like high-fiving every diaper-wearing 85-year-old rocker. I think Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young finally all went. Crosby and, did, too. Crosby did, too. Yeah, yeah. and he hates Neil Young. Yeah. Uh, they, at, they're, they're finally in solidarity. Of, I, I'm, I'm glad. Maybe we'll get somebody who's under fucking 95 to protest this night. <laughs> did you see David Crosby tweeted out, like, hey, does anyone know how, how to get a hold of Taylor, Taylor Swift on, on Twitter? Because I, I really need to talk to her. So yes. I, I yeah, think yeah, he's, yeah, trying, yeah. He's, trying to, he's trying to get him. <laughs> but, like, no, uh, if, if our culture of of low trust um, private sector free speech continues, and I think it is, eventually it's going to degrade even what we have right now, which is this paradoxical moment that the Supreme Court has been great on free speech issues the last 10 years. The Roberts Court has been the best speech court by far, and Neil Gorsuch should be pretty good, and I don't know about the Kavanaugh and the rest of the guys, but like it's been a pretty good thing. But if there can't be that much separation between popular opinion, then we have to pay attention to popular opinion and practices. And my God, people are just gleefully jumping up and down at acts that, that are obviously chilling individuals and the, and the other people that work uh, with them and that will get onto library yeah. decisions and a bunch of other the, stuff. A quick thing on AOC's comment the other day, which I think I sent to you guys. Um, and, you know, bothers me for a number of reasons. But one of the things that really bugs me about it is that AOC is somebody that is so distant from the working class, somebody who speaks in the name of the working class constantly. Although I'm not sure she, I mean, this is a woman who dresses like a hipster and drives a Tesla. This is not somebody who's like, can communicate with the people that in Ottawa right now that are protesting for whatever reason it might be. Because you don't have to engage with them. 
right? Because you, you have headlines that say they're flying swastikas. They're, I mean, I don't know if you saw Justin Trudeau's tweet. One of the most reprehensible, one of the most reprehensible things I've seen in a long time, and he should be kicked out of office for it. They should. I, I wish. I really ban him. Maybe. I, I think they should ban his speech. Yes. I don't think he should say this publicly. No, this is the great thing about speech because you realize how fucking stupid Justin Trudeau is. That is just throwing everything in all the language of today, and he said, you know, these I, I abhor these people that are protesting in Ottawa, and it ended on their homophobia and transphobia. Like, literally, what the fuck are you talking Maybe about? Maybe that they're scared of, like, driving? I, I, I literally have no idea. But it's, it's like, these are the things that, that are the, the, the trigger words now to say, to indicate that these are the bad people. You don't have to engage with them. Because normally, in working class politics, you would have to engage with the actual working class, rather than being AOC and making these Instagram videos where she's whipping up a meringue in her kitchen talking about you know, Marxism or something without actually dealing with, you know, I mean, that was the old apocryphal joke about the 68 uh, riot in the Democratic Convention in Chicago of the kid who falls to his knees in front of the, the vicious pigs of the Chicago police and says, long live the dictatorship of the proletariat. And the cop says, I am the proletariat and cracks his head open. <laughs> that kind of thing is apocryphal, but kind of true at the same time is that none of these people, when they say we need to break up Facebook, what they're saying is very, very simple. And I don't know why people don't talk about this a little more than they, they, they do now is they're saying that Facebook is this great persuasion machine for the dumb they do, it doesn't happen to them. They're very clever. All the people that, that are working at their magazine, incredibly clever. The people that they retweet, it doesn't happen to me. I'm clever. But these fucking rubes who are actual working class people, they don't know and they're being entranced by these big social media companies. What do we do? Is it, is the thing, well, we need some education. No, it's going to shut them down or limit their speech. Because the people are, and I don't know if, Jacob, that you found this in your research of, of, you know, from Socrates on, is that one of the main things in all these speech battles seems to be that the general population is too stupid to actually comprehend these con- con- yeah, these 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 uh, complicated concepts, and we need to actually shut down the speech rather than making arguments that they would favor. No, definitely. You know, Voltaire... Um, said something along the lines of that it's a very good question to which degree the ordinary people, which is like nine-tenths, should be treated as monkeys. Yeah. Uh, so, so Voltaire was not, you know, he was very much in favor of free speech and enlightenment, but for the enlightened few, he was not an advocate of egalitarian yeah. uh, free speech. When does that become a thing? Because you've, you've actually said that about a couple of famous free speech warriors in the past. When does it become a thing where people are not limiting free speech to the upper classes and the educated. Yeah, no, that's a good, uh, you know, you see it, you definitely see it in in America. I think there's very interesting debates between, between federalists and anti-federalists yeah. about the Bill of Rights and specifically anti-federalists' fear about censorship. And there's a, there's a guy called, uh, writes under the name of Philadelphiensis, I think, and he in 1787, he writes this sort of sarcastic pamphlet about how brilliant the American court will be. Look, here's the American president 
going in to sign the bill that will do away with freedom of the press. And what happens in 1798, you know, the Sedition Act being passed. But you see some really brilliant arguments there, both by Madison in his report of 1800, but also this Virginia lawyer called George Hay. He contrasts America with, with Britain. He says, seditious libel laws are apt for Britain, where power and privilege is the basis of political power. But in America, this is disgraceful, something uh, along the lines of that, because uh, in America, power comes from the people. <laughs> and so obviously, their representatives cannot legitimately censor the people from whom they derive their power. So you, you see that there. In Britain, you know, it's around probably the middle of the 19th century. Um, there's a great sort of radical politician called George Grode. He also is an expert in, in ancient uh, Greek history, and he specifically sort of invokes the Athenian democracy, which has been discredited for a long time. D don't forget that, that Madison and Hamilton said that if every member of the Athenian assembly had been a Socrates, it would still have been a mob. But he sort of rehabilitates that uh, John Stuart Mill writes – in 1848, he says that free speech has finally been secured when the working classes were allowed to read newspapers. In a great revolutionary uh, year for <laughs> yeah, 1848. Yeah. yeah, and were being allowed to have dissenters. You know, let's not forget, in the first half of the 19th century in Britain, someone like Richard Carlyle, who was this radical who sold Tom Paine's Age of Reason sort of and Deist publication spent six years in prison for blasphemy in what was Europe's most liberal state at the time. It's really interesting to see what happens after the, the, the French Revolution really becomes radicalized is that during the 1770s, for instance, or even 1760s, even absolutist monarchs like Catherine the Great in Russia, Frederick the Great in Prussia think that free speech is great. And, and free speech becomes fashionable. Mm. But then you have the French Revolution, and suddenly all of Europe, it's thrown an altar, it's, uh, it's absolutism, and free speech is very much identified with uh, radicalism and blamed for the excesses of, uh, of the So French is it Revolution. fair to say that the modern conception of free speech, the way that we think of it now, let's say in the, in the American context, and, you know, the European context too, I mean, there's a lot of laws that, make me uncomfortable in Europe, but there's still very strong free speech instinct in Western Europe and some exceptions, as I said. When does that actually come to, what does that become the sort of ideal that we're trying to reach? I mean, because what you're explaining is that there's all of these heroes of free speech with caveats. Yeah. A lot of caveats here. When does it become somebody who is the purest form in somebody that has a certain level of power too and influence of the what you would consider, and I think probably what all of us would consider, uh, the the kind of modern kind of best conception. Of <laughs> That's a very good question. I think you have some early, like the levelers. I never understood why John Milton is being praised. First of all, because he had this very selective and narrow free speech conception. When at the same time you had the levelers in in England who advocated actually for for representative democracy yeah. at the time and political egalitarianism. And they were both, they were opposed not only to pre-publication censorship, but also to, to post-publication censorship. So, so they, to me, were sort of free speech radicals. And, and their principles, even if unacknowledged, 
uh, you know, are sometimes indistinguishable from some of the principles that would more than a century later animate uh, some of the American founders and, and some of their writings sound very similar to what James Madison, for instance, would would write. You know, it's quite late that free speech really gains the upper ground in year where, where it becomes... So it's a recent uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I would say so. But it's it's also with stops and then progress and then progress is, is being sort of rolled back. But, you know, in my own country, I would say our golden age was really after World War Two and until the last decade, uh, for instance. In, in many ways, Denmark, even though we had hate speech laws and so on, in, in, in many ways we had a political uh, and legal culture where uh, we would allow, you know, you could have Nazis walking in the streets with swastikas and, and so on, and that wouldn't be, be prosecuted. Weirdly, uh, Nazis never became uh, like a viable political party. Yeah, I don't know. I guess why some I, people would I say Danska Folkepartiet is the same thing. But let's. I know we're we're up on time here, so let me just finish on one thing. And I know Matt is interested in this too. We discussed this in 2018, uh, but it's worth revisiting because things change really fast in 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 these debates. Uh, and let's remain in Denmark. Um, Denmark obviously had the most amazing, wild brain-melting upheaval um, with the Muhammad cartoon crisis that Jan's Posten published and our mutual friend Fleming Rose uh, was the man behind those and our friend F- Fleming Rose who since then has lived under police protection mm, uh, still does pets, yeah. the, uh, the Secret Service uh, travels with him um, his location is undisclosed and, and for people who don't know this Denmark is similar in, in a way to Sweden you can find out a lot about a person from public records. You can find out what they make in Sweden. You can find out what they pay in taxes. Um, Fleming has been removed from that public register in a lot of ways, and it's very difficult to find him because his life has been threatened by lunatics for publishing these cartoons. That conversation has kind of sunk in the background. It doesn't really... It's not a thing The people that were the strongest advocates of this or debating these issues don't really talk about it much anymore. Or have disappeared entirely um, when we had the conversation about Islamism and in its uh, effects in Europe, etc. What is it like now in, in, in Denmark so many years after that thing that I think kind of changed your life too, didn't it? Yeah, it's, it's uh, very much the reason why I, I sort of got into the whole uh, thing of free speech because previous to that, I took free speech for granted. It was like yeah. breathing the air, right? I lived in a secular, progressive, uh, open yeah. democracy where no one, you know, thought about free speech because it, it was never challenged. Uh, 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 right now, I, I don't think that, no, I, the, the, I mean, the cartoons are always looming in the background. I think uh, one of the, the things that we're debating now is that since the killing of this French teacher, Samuel Petit, yeah. Who was who was murdered? Beheaded. Who was beheaded for for showing using the cartoons of, of Prophet Muhammad in a in class teaching about free speech? So using it in a pedagogical way, that has become a big issue in Denmark because uh, some teachers say they're afraid. You know, I I often go so, sort of to high schools and I always show them, but some are afraid. And you show the cartoons? Yeah, I show the cartoons. Um, has that ever resulted in? either pushback, rage, or threats against you? No, no. I've never been threatened in that way. I also did this sort of short documentary sort of more than a decade ago where I used the cartoons, and and I published a book about the history of free speech in in Denmark with the cartoons. No one ever... But it's so unpredictable, you know? Yeah. Anyone can sort of become 
on the radar of Islamists, but I've been lucky enough to escape it. But but now, so now there are those who says that the government should pass a law obliging schools to use the cartoons. Oh. In uh, and I'm not really comfortable with that, you know, because again, it's a bit like the CRT thing, you know. It's very what, what, much right. But, but what's the next thing that then must be used? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for teachers to use the cartoons because it's been one of the most important issues in in Danish political uh, history for the past 15 years. So it would make a lot of, you know, in the same way that, you know, if you teach about this concept that we haven't talked about at all so far, uh, Nazism (laughs) 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 and the Holocaust, you you know, of course you, you show pictures of swastikas or Adolf Hitler. So, you know, why, why wouldn't you, and why wouldn't you show the cartoons I don't think it's a great idea to mandate the use of them. I think that can very, you know, I understand the impulse, but I think that can very, very quickly be manipulated for for all kinds of of, of other uses. So it's it's one of those things where you use sort of illiberal means to further the idea of free speech, but where you actually may end up undermining it. I want to end on this because, and I want you to correct me. I want you to add detail and uh, correct any details. Because a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, a Danish uh, journalist friend of ours, was active in this uh, conversation and wrote a book uh, with the person that I'm about to mention. Because I think it's one of the stories that I wrote about it for the Daily Beast a long time ago that has gotten basically no attention outside of Denmark, a few pieces here and there, mine being one of them, is the case of Ahmed Akari. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most... Um, inspirational stories in a way. And I'm, I, and I, my knowledge of this cuts off a long time ago. So maybe Akari's gone mad or something and it's no longer inspirational, but, and I think that people might've heard me talk about, it. I talked about it the other day briefly at the end of a Patreon episode, but I think it's a really important thing to talk about because all of us remember the cartoons. I think some of us remember how this happened, right? There were two, Imams, one a guy named Abu Laban, I think, was one who's since since died. In Ahmed Akari, they're kind of self-appointed uh, imams. Akari, I believe, is a Lebanese Dane, um, and they took the cartoons along with other cartoons that didn't exist in the initial publication of the Yilans Post and cartoons, and and went on a little tour around the Middle East, riling people up, saying, "This is what these kuffar are showing," and get angry, and the next thing you know. People are being threatened, uh, Danish embassies are being burned, boycotts are happening, and people are dying. Akhmed Akari is the man, one of the two men, chiefly responsible for that. And as a result, uh, Pets, the Secret Service, uh, tells him, you know, it might be good to fuck off for a little bit because people don't like you here very much. And he goes to Greenland, which is a, effectively what a principality of Denmark. It's <laughs> sort of Danish, but nobody really wants it because you can maybe it's like one big parking lot. So they, he goes oh, there. Uh, actually, now everyone wants it. The Chinese wants it. The Russians. Oh, Trump, yeah. wanted Tr- it. Trump wants it. Yeah, yeah. Trump wanted to buy it. So well, I mean, I'll buy it, but I don't know what I can do with it. Uh, it's uh, strategically <laughs> quite important. Strategically great. So uh, uh, Akari goes there and spends some time. I talked to him not long after this. And uh, in his time there, and this is a very great simplification of this, but but uh, Ahmed Akari starts reading books in the library because he's basically got nothing else to do. What is there to do in Denmark except for try to sell it to various world leaders? He uh, comes across a lot of kind of classics, right, of 
intellectual history. And, you know, I don't know if he read John Stuart Mill, but people like that effectively and has a sort of realization that, holy shit, I was wrong. This was a huge fucking mistake. When he says this, there's a video that pops up online uh, from a Danish contingent of ISIS uh, scumbags who say, you know, these are the people that we can't stand. We, we Kurt Vestergaard, the guy who drew the Muhammad, the bomb in the car, the, 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 the turban, um, Ahmed Akari, et cetera. And they, they swing on a knee, this is in the video, and they rake these printouts on a berm uh, with machine gun fire. This is what's going to happen to you fuckers, right? And now Akari is now living under a different kind of threat and comes back to Denmark. I don't know the, the actual chronology of this, but there's a photo of him hugging Kurt Vestergaard in his house, the man who drew the Muhammad and the bomb of the German, which was the, the, the piece, one, right? Yeah. That you go and you, um, that story to me, and, you know, there's a lot more to it, and you can correct me on any of the details that I'm wrong about this, was so inspirational to me that I, that I thought, you know, this is the value of the exchange of free ideas. This is the value of speech. This is the value of allowing someone whose brain has been so perverted by a really deranged version of an ideology to go to a place in isolation and be in a library in, in front of his computer and then kind of breathe in all of these ideas that he hadn't heard of before and say, good Lord, what the fuck was I doing? I'm wrong. This is terrible. Yeah. And that is amazing that one of the two people that precipitated this crisis in Denmark actually had a change of heart. And that is something that is underappreciated about the entire debate about this thing. So I don't know if, if I've gotten a lot of that no, wrong. No, I, I think you got it right. And, and you know, I, I experienced something very similar. Like I wrote a piece defending the rights of Hispateria, these yeah. uh, Islamists who, who believe in want to establish a caliphate. And they tend yeah, yeah. to be sort of quite intellectual people. They're not pro-violence, but they're sort of obviously very extremist. And I wrote a piece defending their right to, to free speech. Some, mm -hmm. some politicians wanted to ban them. And then I got an email from a guy who was a leading member and he said, you know, your piece completely made me realize that the freedoms of, of speech uh, and, and so on are essential. And so he left his career. Wow. Uh, Did he do this publicly? Yeah, I've, I've written a piece about it in Danish. And, you know, you could, an, an even more powerful statement of that is a great British guy called Shiraz Meyer. Yeah, Shiraz is a friend of mine. I love Shiraz. You, you yeah. can go and watch it on YouTube at, at the Oslo Freedom Forum. And he, yeah. he, he talks about how he's standing protesting human rights violations in Uzbekistan outside the Uzbeki uh, embassy with his pizzeria with these black banners. And suddenly he realizes, listen, I'm standing here in London. I have the right to protest human rights violations and, and demonstrate, while at the same time, I believe... I'm advocating a system where that would not be allowed at all. Yeah, yeah. And then just everything just fell apart from it, and you just realized this does not make any sense. So that is the power of a free democracy. Right. He, uh, the funny thing is that uh, I don't think Shiraz would mind me t uh, uh, mentioning this. I interviewed a high-ranking American official at one point a long time ago, and Shiraz saw it. I think I posted it online or something. And he sent me an email and he said, hey, man, I don't know if this is <laughs> out of line, but uh, I'm banned from the United States. Do you think that you could talk to these people or give me an email address so I can be like, that shit's gone. And Shiraz, um, well, I'll be, I'll be coy about this. Shiraz really went in the other direction. 
Um, and, and he abandoned all of that. And I'll just put it this way. Shiraz and I have had a lot of fun nights together. And uh, <laughs> oh, no. the guy is, the guy is hilarious. Oh, no. He's absolutely brilliant. He's like an academic now. He taught, I think, at Johns Hopkins or one of the, he taught, taught uh, like a seminar course on extremism. And he's one of the great voices um, in, not necessarily in, op- I mean, he's in opposition to extremism, but kind of contextualizing why people go into that life. And it's great. I mean, to that point, it's, it's another uh, person who's been pulled out of that life by just you know the general you know uh i don't even know how how you'd actually put it because i I think it's slightly different for everybody but i would say it's you know these people that are pulled out of this life because they realize you know as george rollwell said it's it's difficult to see what's in front of one's nose and what's in front of one's nose is the protest that they're holding for his but in a country that if the islamist wins were slightly different they would not be allowed to do that. They'd be arrested. And it's not even just like, you know, another country that has extreme hate speech laws or something. It's, you know, Islamic factionalism where you're not necessarily welcome in certain Muslim countries for, you know, advocating for certain, you know, Muslim beliefs, depending whether Sunni, Shia, et cetera. To be able to do that, um, I think hits people sometimes. And I think the Ahmed Akari one was something that was really just blew me away. And... I'll, I'll say I can say one thing. I don't think he'd mind this. The person who wrote the book with him, Ghost Red, is a friend of ours, and he sent me a link um, when I said, "How's Akari?" I'd talked to him a bunch, and I said, "How's he doing?" You know what's going on? He's writing this, and he sent me this link that had a folder, and it was a folder, it was a Google Drive folder, and it had a bunch of videos that he had taken when he was in uh, Greenland with him. And they were the most astonishing things I've seen. It was this one hilarious scene in like this disco in Greenland. And it was like, and lights are flashing. And there's two people in there. There's one tall guy who was a Hungarian guitar player Mm -hmm. who had moved to Greenland for probably, you know, he was probably wanted for something like our old engineer. And, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and in Akari sitting there in this kind of empty discotheque, in you know god knows where um and it was just this like amazing like kind of inspirational loneliness if i can call yeah. it a phrase that was like this guy was forced into this but uh but it, it had forever changed and i think a point about that is you use the the verb uh, you know pulled out of this but in fact there was nobody there wasn't a single person yanking them that is right it was a it's that's a, exactly right it's a library it's exposure to ideas it's it's a personal reflection about and, where I mean, and you 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 find that that's kind of accurate about akari that his his interaction and my conversations with him at that time where I remember him calling me and he was saying, have you heard of this guy? And I was like, I have no idea who the fuck you're talking about. And it was some lecturer from like University of Chicago who had posted a bunch of shit online and he was blown away by this. And I was like, yeah, no, it's pretty sort of pedestrian stuff. But to him, it was amazing. I mean, that was something that was true, right? I mean, he had that. Yeah, he had like, yeah, he had an epiphany, like a a liberal democratic uh, uh, epiphany. And, and, And I think that, Really shows the strength uh, of, yeah. of of these values that we take for granted, and that we sometimes, uh, or that a lot of people think, uh, are sort of relics that should be uh, dumped on the ash heap of history. And I think that would uh, uh, is, is is a very dangerous uh, dangerous course. I, I suspect that had the Danish government tried to uh, throw him in jail for you know 
talking about these things in the way that he talked about them, that maybe this epiphany wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah, of course. The fact that he could actually, you know, he was not uh, punished, even though yeah. he threw the country out to a, in, in a national security crisis and, and held beliefs that deeply uh, abhorrent to, to most things. Uh, and he does take responsibility for some of yeah, that. Yeah. And some of the deaths, too. Yeah. That, like, you know, you created a situation that otherwise wouldn't have been created without you. I mean, remember the important thing chrono- chronologically to remember that the Danish cartoon crisis happened in the Middle East how many months after they were published? Yeah. It, it, months. It, yeah, it was like, I think it was basically, you know, the cartoons were published, I think, 30th September 2005, and it was probably some like January, February 2006 before things really started blowing off. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for uh, joining us for the second time. We hope that the next time you drop a fucking doorstop of a book on our laps that, you know, it's like homework. I got to do, I got to read this before you come. Are you kidding me? What do you like? I'm glad you brought me some sake because it made it worthwhile. But um, this is a book that everybody should buy. And there's the reasons that you all know from this, from this, from this interview. But if you want to have these conversations about free speech, and so many of you engage us in these conversations about free speech, it's very important to have the background knowledge of the history of free speech. And as Jacob's subtitle tells you, it goes back to Socrates. This is not, this is not yesterday, my friend. This is a long and very, very smart book that will cover everything. Go out and buy it. Basic books, free speech. Uh, uh, Jacob, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I hope everybody who listens to this will buy it and make you a rich Dane, which you will then have to hand over entirely to your government in Texas. <laughs> and then we're going to go fucking party at the Hungarian disco in Greenland. That's yeah. all I uh, I've, we, we, rounds, we, rounds on me. I, I don't, I don't think that for we're going to stop us. at the door there. <laughs> you know, they let in terrorists, That's true. <laughs> former, former, yeah, former yeah. terrorists. So bye. bye. Now of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. Column.